Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have an anchor in Christ, that when the world seems to be beyond our control, when its waves seem to rise, we need not be afraid. You are still the Lord of history. This is still your perfect plan. The plan is for the glory of Christ and the good of his people, and it will be the plan that guides us best and safely to our eternal refuge with him. And we pray that as we now hear your word opened, that we would be helped to rest in Christ, that we would fear the word less, that we would trust your word more, and that we would glory in the goodness of the gospel, in the face of the chaos and uncertainty of all the ways that we would change it or add to it, or all the alternatives the world has given to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, the, the email for this week said that we'd be having Lord's Supper. We, we plan and hope to have it next week. I've, I've never found the idea of pet peeves to be a very particularly Christian one. You don't just get this free pass to say, this thing always annoys me and I have a right to be annoyed by it. That's an opportunity for sanctification. That being said, I think there's, there's one particular pet peeve I have, something that really grinds my gears. And I think this one's, this one's okay. I think a Christian can have this one and you'd probably agree with me. And that is watching Christians in movies. I wonder if that frustrates you as much as me. And there's a few different Christian tropes, and I don't enjoy any of them. There's the one where, you know, like the main character like stumbles into the church, and there's that big vaulted ceiling, and the pews are all empty, and he sits in the church. And then this, you know, person in a collar, because how else would we know that they're a Christian teacher unless they have a collar? They, they walk in behind, and they sit behind, you know, the row behind them or two behind them. And then they give this advice that absolutely no Christian would give. Or there's like the, the matron who's always talking about angels and spiritual things, but doesn't know how to talk about the gospel. But of course, the most common trope that you will find in secular media is the hypocrite, right? It's the nosy neighbor with the binoculars who's watching all of our main characters have a good time and condemning them. It's the town council that outlaws dancing. It's that psychopathic parent who's reciting Bible verses like ritualistic chants. They preach abstinence from everything that is entertaining and fun because fun is sinful. And the story usually ends for this character in one of two ways. Either the Christian gets exposed and everybody realizes that the hypocritical Christian was the worst person in the room the whole time with their judgmental attitude and their secret longing to sin themselves, or they see the error of their ways and they trade their anger and hypocrisy for free love and pleasure like everyone else is enjoying. Now, we can get upset at the way that the world sees Christians or the way that their stories influence the way people see us, but there is clearly something in this caricature that rings true with many people, and even with many people in the church People raised in the church often feel like this is the place you go to have your natural desires forcibly oppressed, while the Bible is used to give you rules with which to condemn the behaviors that we all secretly want to do. And this either leaves church members leaning into their hypocrisy, Condemning the things they're not guilty of or the things that they can indulge in secretly while they very publicly parade around and show how much better they are using these superficial ways they judge others. Or it leaves us throwing off the rules, admitting that we secretly wanted to do all along everything that the world was enjoying, everything that we were trying to suppress. And now you will find us marching in pride parades, declaring that we are finally free from the hypocritical shackles of our religion. The Galatian church was starting to look a lot like a church full of these sorts of Christians. The Judaizers were there promoting this gospel that we are all saved by faith in Jesus and by meeting certain qualifications according to the law. Now, we've been following along in Galatians as Paul has just 
utterly dismantled this gospel using the Old Testament, showing that what the Judaizers said was never true for God's people. God's people never inherited God's promises according to their flesh, never inherited them by proving how much that they were better, that they met a certain standard of pedigree, that they obeyed more laws. Abraham, Isaac, you and I are only a part of God's family because there was one perfect heir, Jesus Christ. He himself was supernaturally born by the Spirit, was raised from the dead by the Spirit, so that all of us, like Isaac was miraculously born from the Spirit, can be miraculously born by the Spirit according to a life in the Spirit. So now that Paul has shown that that's true, he is going to show how this gospel, where Christ accomplishes everything, where God does it on our behalf, is also the gospel that cares most about holiness and makes us most holy. Because remember these false gospels in Galatia. Why, why does any false gospel, why does any addition to the gospel get a foothold? It's the promise that you will be set apart, that you will finally feel like a Christian, you'll finally look like a Christian, you'll finally be holy, people will finally see that you're holy, respect that you're holy, and you can have confidence by looking at yourself. I can finally just look at myself and feel assured that I'm a Christian. Others can look at me and feel assured that I'm a Christian because of the things that I do, because of my works. So they come along, these teachers, and they just add these rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and you can be confident you're a Christian. Just come with me for this second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Come with me for this special secret knowledge of Bible codes and prophecies of the end times that you didn't know before. Come with me for these special works of activism where you can stand in front of the world and show how good you are. And then you'll finally feel secure. You'll finally feel holy. Increasingly, these false ideas of what makes us holy turn us into the caricatures that the world thinks we are. They leave us as hypocrites. They don't change our hearts. We're sitting there wishing we could indulge our flesh just like the world around us. We're angry. We're frustrated. Maybe we are indulging it privately, but all the while we've got these rules and we've got to uphold the rules because how else will they know we're Christians? How else will we know we're Christians? We have to maintain our pride, don't we? Look at what these additions to the gospel have done in the church of Galatia. Turn to Galatians 5. Starting at verse 14, look what they've done to Galatia. Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Far from making the Galatians more righteous, this new focus on proving yourself according to the law has made them hateful. It's made them devour each other and compete. They're proud and they have missed the whole purpose of the law entirely. They've missed even its standard of righteousness, loving each other. In last week's passage, we saw as Paul contrasted the life of the spirit with the life of the flesh. And these two lives begin and are rooted in which gospel you cling to. What gospel is your hope? If your hope is in the gospel that sets you apart according to your pedigree, according to your works, according to what you've earned, Paul says this gospel will leave you living life according to your flesh. The flesh for Paul is our whole human nature apart from the supernatural work of God. Who would you be if the spirit had no say in your life? It is what is natural to us in our state of sin. There are a million gospels, a million ways to live that will leave you walking according to the flesh, leave you living in sin. Islam and Sikhism and Mormonism and Judaism and humanism, or just using God's laws as a means to salvation, a means to show that you are worthy as a Christian. This will all leave you not only enslaved to rules, but enslaved to the very sins that these rules were trying to suppress and to regulate. These false gospels will leave you feeding your flesh. They'll leave you indulging in it or trying to starve it while you wish you could indulge in it. It is only the true gospel 
which lets go of any claim that we have to prove ourselves to God and trusts in justification by faith in Jesus alone, that's the only gospel that leads to true holiness. It's not a system of ways to threaten someone, to cajole someone, to force them to act holy. It is an inward change of heart by which we are actually conformed to holiness. Actually conformed to the image of Christ, even conformed to the good standard of God's character we find in his law. This is the real regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in every believer. The life that flows out of that is one according to the Spirit. It's walking by the Spirit. Now, even for the regenerate believer, the flesh wars against the Spirit. So Paul exhorts the Galatians, do not live by the flesh. Don't put your hopes in laws and threats to control your sinful desires. And thus live according to what your flesh cares about. Walk by the spirit, which is gifted to all those who have faith in Christ. Paul continues. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. To bring home this point Paul's making, he gives us two contrasting lists of evidence. The first is the evident work of the flesh, which is the result of any gospel, any way of life that human beings make for themselves. It will always lead to the works of the flesh. Paul says, contrast that with the evidence or the fruit of the regenerative work of the spirit that comes from faith in Christ alone. He calls that the fruit of the spirit. That is, of course, the more popular list to read. And it is a more delightful list to read. But for the next two weeks, we are going to focus on the first list, the works of the flesh. Verses 19 through 21 of Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, divisions, uh, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This list is clearly not meant to be an exhaustive list of sins. He ends it by saying things like these. Paul's goal here is to tell his readers to open their eyes to the clear fruit, the clear result of any false gospel, any addition to the gospel, any way of life that they are being tempted by. Our legalisms, our regulations will leave us in the exact same sins of the world around us. The only difference is that we're trying to hide that as it masters us. We can break down this list of works of the flesh roughly into four categories. Sexual sins, mysticism or false religion, division, and excess. And this week we are going to focus on the first category. Paul gives three terms for sexual sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. These words are intentionally broad. You can go to many other passages in scripture where very specific actions are noted and condemned, homosexuality, prostitution, adultery. But these terms on this list have more to do with the broad condition and the underlying condition that produces specific sinful actions. The word for immorality here in Greek, porneia, used to be translated fornication. It is any physical behavior that falls outside of God's design for physical relationships between a husband and a wife. Marriage was designed by God, designed from the very beginning to be a parable, a walking, talking, living, full-blooded parable of God's love for his people. Through the Old Testament, the prophets speak of God choosing his bride and loving them with perfect fidelity. This culminates in the New Testament where we see Christ's relationship with the church, which is called the Bride of Christ. Marriage, as a picture of this relationship between Jesus and his people, is a gift. 
It's a gift through which God sanctifies both husband and wife, just as Jesus is concerned with the sanctification of his bride. Marriage is given to the husband and wife to conform them to the image of Christ. And that doesn't just happen through its challenges, its opportunities for forgiveness. This sanctification also happens through a husband and wife's intimacy and their delight in each other. Even the intimate physical relationship between a husband and a wife is a very good part of marriage's sanctifying work. This intimacy demonstrates to the husband and wife that marriage has made them one flesh and that this unity is good. This delight in intimacy speaks to the good, holy way that God loves his people. Read Song of Solomon. It is good for the husband to desire his wife, to take pleasure in her, to want to encourage her and to enjoy her as a gift from God to him. And likewise, it is good for the wife to long for her husband, to want to encourage him, to enjoy him as a gift from God in this way. They delight to desire each other. They delight in being desired. At the same time, for the person in the church who is unmarried, there are many wonderful relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. There are many unique opportunities for ministry which make this life a wonderful way to be sanctified without requiring a physical relationship from God. The single person can see marriage and look at it and see it in the married people around them as a wonderful parable for God's love of the church without requiring it for their own sanctification. But both the married and the unmarried can agree that the physical relationship between a husband and wife is the good, righteous, only expression that God has made for sexual intimacy. For anyone, married or unmarried, to seek this pleasure outside of God's design for marriage is to take this good gift, which serves a sanctifying purpose within a covenant relationship, and say, I would like that without the covenant. I would like the benefits without committing to someone else. I would like those benefits without the desire to be sanctified through them. This will make your idea of pleasure, your whole idea of what it is, all about whether or not you have been satisfied. You're going to start looking at people made in the image of God as possible means of your satisfaction. You'll start enjoying them as objects and wanting to enjoy them as objects. And this selfish desire, once you've started to make this desire all about you and what you can get, will obsess you and control you. Proverbs, as we read, describes marital love and intimacy as this fountain. God designed it as a work of art. It sits in the middle of the city square. Look what I have done. Look how good this is. Look how it speaks to my design and my artistry. And Proverbs contrasts this with our lustful passions, which spew out like a geyser into the street. We can't control who they touch. We can't control what they harm, barely under our own control. By trying to pursue pleasure outside of God's design, you are suppressing his truth. You are worshiping a gift rather than the one who gave it. And this will lead you steadily further and further from God's design and his wisdom, even for all of life. This geyser of sloppy, uncontrollable passion pouring out of you is going to take you further and further from God's goodwill, and there's nothing even you will want to do about it. It will get you further from common grace. And this happens both in individuals and in societies. This is when we start to desire physical pleasure from people or things that have absolutely no business being objects of our pleasure. Romans 1 says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary even to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Paul concludes, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Our own context today is not so very different from the context of the Romans or the Galatians. We are in the midst of a culture that is not just practicing these sins, but celebrating them. Just this uh, past month, a new law passed in our own parliament, and it was celebrated on both sides of the aisle. There were people who are used to accusing each other, crossing the aisle to hug and to weep. The Canadian government has never looked so unified. This law is commonly called a ban on conversion therapy, and when people talk about it, they usually talk about these outlandish practices like shock therapy or treatment camps, which would certainly have no place in a church. However, the bill itself defines conversion therapy as any practice, treatment, or service that would change or repress a person's orientation or identity from the one they have chosen for themselves. It particularly demands that you cannot insist that it is better to be heterosexual or that it is better to identify with the sex you were assigned at birth. These vague guidelines mean that any advice or counsel which insists that God's gospel design for marriage and intimacy is better and sweeter than serving our own flesh is a punishable offense in Canada. The preamble of the law says thus, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because among other things it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. That is nonsense. Is it a myth that men and women are physically designed in a way that shows a unique physical compatibility. Is it a myth that naturally born males and females together are the only relationship that can naturally produce children? It is not a myth that it is good for children to be raised by a loving father and mother who show them familial care. It is not a myth that it is better to learn to live righteously in the body God has given you than spend your whole life and thousands of dollars trying to war and suppress your own body. It is not a myth that this has been the majority report even among fallen humanity and creation through history. And outwardly calling these things a myth makes the works of the flesh so evident and plain. The folly of our enslavement to flesh and where it leads us. We make facts into myths. We become so enslaved by our pleasure, by our need to satisfy ourselves physically, that somehow the only truth left is what I tell you my identity is, and my identity is most deeply rooted in what gives me sexual pleasure. Now the immorality of our culture shows us Paul's point. Because Paul's point is that absurd and nat unnatural behavior is what is most natural to all of us. Our flesh naturally rejects God. It would reject his wisdom. It would choose absurdity 
before loving God's design, which is clear even in our natural physical makeup. We so hate this idea of a husband and wife in covenant that we would rather celebrate when children choose a new sexual identity and live according to it before they even know how to read. The immorality of our culture clearly displays fallen slavery to the flesh. Paul's list does not only include sexual immorality. He also lists impurity and sensuality. Impurity is letting our minds wander and dwell on anything outside of God's design for pleasure. And friends, make no mistake. The seeds of our present day confusion in our culture were sown long ago. When so many of us were so content with so much impurity and immorality, as long as it felt more natural to us, as long as it didn't seem icky and just felt like the normal way to do things. We were fine with our favorite characters in fiction being men who went from city to city conquering new women wherever they went with their animal magnetism. That seems normal. We were fine when we were becoming desensitized to the physical body in advertising and in popular media. Swimsuits and underclothes became so commonplace that we didn't treat them as strange. We thought that was a pretty normal thing for society to do, all the while we knew that they were there to attract our gaze. We loved and wanted to be like celebrities, to be awesome like them, to be moral like them, even as they married and then remarried and then remarried and then remarried without any remorse. Many of us are such strong opponents to our culture's sexual immorality while we are so content with so much impurity in our lives. Our social media pages are designed to attract people that we are not in covenant with. We enjoy websites, magazines, videos, which are so saturated with attractive figures for us to gawk at. For many of us, it seems ridiculous and impossible that we could restrict our gaze and our attraction just to one person. If you are so comfortable regularly serving your desires and your passions, then you have no answer for the person who says, I also get a right to serve my desires and passions, even though they're different than yours. You have no answer. This is why so many people in the church, and this is so frustrating, seem like the strongest opponents against progressivism. They hate it. I just like what's normal and natural, the way that God designed it. And they are the quickest people to give in and say, I was wrong. I was a stronger opponent to everyone and I was wrong because they were already so committed to serving their own physical needs. They saw these as idols that they had to satisfy that they didn't know what to say when someone comes along and says, don't I also have a right to this thing that you are demanding? Even if my way of satisfying that need is different than yours. Living to satisfy our pleasures, being addicted to satisfying our pleasures is called sensuality. It can be expressed in a number of ways. An overdependence on food or drink or consumerism or expensive habits or entertainment. But sensuality will usually lead us to indulgence in sexual pleasure, which is where the sin becomes most evident. For the single person, Sensuality might look like you insisting that God cannot refuse you the right of finding some way to gratify your flesh. God cannot say that is sinful because I have a right to satisfy this need. It would be wicked for him not to let you take care of your urges. For the married person, this might look like a feeling that you have a right to satisfy your body's needs if your spouse doesn't meet them according to your desires. We're so addicted to our physical sensations. We are so obligated to satisfy them by any means necessary. 
This sensuality, this living to satisfy your pleasure will necessarily, absolutely, definitely lead you to seek pleasure beyond God's good design for its flourishing. It will turn the fountain into a broken, gushing geyser. Now, in our culture, the sins of immorality, impurity, sensuality are plain, yes. But Paul's warning here is for us. It is for the danger and the damage of our false gospels. The laws that we impose to look extra holy, that leave us enslaved to the same evident works of the flesh as the world. Because sex and romance are an aspect of life where many people in the world are very clearly enslaved by their flesh, and it's been that way through history. And because temptation to this sin is often so strong, our false gospels and our laws are usually going to give a great deal of attention to this part of our lives either by particularly restricting it or giving special license to it, or both. Throughout history, some men have tried to say, you know what, it's just more holy, more righteous to swear off this pleasure altogether. It clearly leads to no good, and we really just have to cut this thing off. Monks and priests through history were considered more holy than married people because they could totally cut off the temptation. They could totally deny the need to satisfy this pleasure. And this made the established church content with a significant amount of hypocrisy among its clergy as long as we could ignore this sin and keep it private. And what did that lead to? Right now, the Roman church is embroiled in one of the most vile scandals of abuse in all of history. A few decades ago, Protestants themselves became very enamored with this idea that they typically called purity culture. Let's create special rules because we got to govern this sin that's running rampant among our single people. So let's give special holy significance to someone who has never sinned in this regard. And that if you do, you've lost something that you'll never get back. It was insinuated that if you sinned in this area, God would forgive you. But you're never really in the place that you were in had you never done anything. Likewise, many other sins were ignored as long as you could demonstrate that you were maintaining your holiness in this area. This movement robbed the gospel of grace and the power of sanctification. And I would say it participated in rather than mitigated the rejection of the gospel among many people in that generation. You also have... The pagan legalism of liberal churches. Here, there is no greater wickedness than denying a person the right to their physical pleasures. You don't have to believe in God. You can believe whatever you want. You can think whatever is true of God, whatever is true of the gospel, whatever is true of anything. But you better promote my sexual desires as my core identity. And if not, I will call you a bigot. But friends, as we see the fruit of false gospels in the church, in other churches, let us then be all the more watchful for how they can take hold in our own church and in our own hearts. We must be aware of the danger that you face, that I face, when our view of holiness and righteousness or purity is rooted in anything other than a love of the true gospel of grace, anything other than the grace of Jesus Christ through which we are sanctified by the Spirit, anything other than the love of Jesus for his people, which is the foundation of all covenant love. Maybe you have fallen to similar thinking as the Roman church. That is that you think, you know, ultimately we'd all just be a little bit more holy, a little bit more Christian if we could deny this pleasure and get it under the rug and not feel it. You might be a married person who sees this part of your relationship as a burden. You feel ashamed that your spouse would desire you. You feel ashamed of desiring your spouse. And so, even emotionally, you just start to restrict it a little bit. We'd just be better if this is a less prevalent part of our relationship. This deliberate frustration of a righteous, good, sanctifying way that God gave you to enjoy this pleasure will very likely lead one or both of you to sin. Perhaps you'll start leering at those you are not in covenant with. You might start forming strong bonds and relationships 
with people who aren't your spouse, with other spouses as you start to wish that they were yours. Or it will just lead to the arrogance of hypocrisy because you have added rules to set you apart from others to restrict what God has made good. On the other side, you might make this pleasure the entire focus of your marriage. Everything else is oriented around whether you got physically satisfied. Every part of your marriage is a part of this exchange. Look at the good things that I did. Did I do enough good things? What have we done? What's been happening? Oriented around this main question of whether or not you got the amount of pleasure you deserved from your spouse. Their main job as your spouse, after all, when you hired them, was to become an object of your desire. You might believe, you know what, if I sin, ultimately it was their fault. Because there was a good way to enjoy this and they didn't let me have it. You might believe that if they don't meet your expectations, that you've been justified in your indignation against them, in sinning against them in this or other areas. Another way our false gospels fail us in this area is that we start to take Christian confidence from other areas of our life where we think we are doing well, while we accept that, you know, I just can't get this part of my life under control. I'm doing great. God is gracious. This is just a part of my life where I'm having a particularly tough time. And because nowadays, it is often so easy to keep this sin a secret. You don't have to get up and go and walk down the street to the house of ill repute. Or to the place where men go to see adult entertainment. We start to feel like maybe the sin is somehow different. It's less than it was when men had to get up and go to do those things. The consequences must even be different as well. Because you can hide that sin in your bedroom, in your basement... It's actually barely harming anyone. And the devil whispers with your flesh that if there's no worldly consequences, there must be no heavenly consequences. You can maintain your standing in the community, your family, your church, because look at all the good things you do in other areas. And then you can just lead this life of slavery to your flesh in your private time. It's more important, isn't it? That everyone thinks you're holy than being holy. Nobody, not even yourself, can think that you're really guilty of similar sins to this world, to fornication, of adultery. After all, the sin was unavoidable, wasn't it? You couldn't help it. It was too accessible. The fruit was hanging so low, it was practically being shoved into your hand. Nobody would fault you for having to take it. Friends, this sin is extremely easy to access. Our technology keeps pornography always at our fingertips. Meanwhile, the whole world is yelling at us to justify their own sin. This is good. This is necessary. You have to do it because I have to do it. This is a formidable foe. No fleshly gospel. No law, no threat, no promise, no social consequence is enough to free you from that immorality, from impurity, from sensuality. In the midst of a culture that is begging you, that is even threatening you to join with them, like the men of Sodom banging on Lot's door. Nothing except the gospel. Nothing except the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through which we so delight in Christ's love for us in which we want to celebrate and enjoy that good parable of marriage, through which we can want to honor it by practicing this fruit of the Spirit called self-control. My friend, if you are currently indulging your flesh in this area, do not try and apply false gospels of rules and regulations or just relying on appearances to deal with this issue for you. No matter how this work of the flesh is manifesting in your life, in secret indulgence, in a desire to give in to the world's idea of sexuality, in a broken relationship with your spouse full of threats and frustrations, 
seek out the help that relies entirely on the Spirit, entirely on the gospel. It is so easy to answer these frustrations with a high bar of legalism or a low bar of legalism. To be satisfied, at least I'm doing better than that chaotic world around me. Or to be content that your sin is private. Everybody thinks I look so holy. Look at Paul's warning in verse 21. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now this is not to say that your sin has already excluded you from God's eternal rest. The whole point of Paul's warning here is he knows that even after we belong to Christ, our flesh is still warring against our spirit. The question for Paul is which do you walk by? Which of them leads you? Would you be ready or feel you had to change your view of God and the gospel to accommodate your flesh because you just have to serve its desires? Would you prefer that we as a church change our gospel a little bit to restrict that even more, to hammer it down more, or to allow for it more, to talk about this less? as many churches have. As a church, friends, for us to walk by the Spirit, to desire holiness, is to delight in all that God has made good and not be mastered by it. Delight in what God has made good and do not be mastered by it. If you put your trust in rules and regulations to save you, or put your hope only in what people can see and judge you by, it doesn't matter whether you think you're doing well, whether you seem to be doing well, or whether you're doing poorly, you are being led by the flesh, which will ultimately lead you to reject the gospel and not inherit the kingdom of God. But friends, on the other side of this warning is a promise. That when we were being ruled by our flesh, when we were enslaved to sin against God, God came. He came and took on humanity. The only Son of God, Jesus Christ, walked in perfect step with the Holy Spirit. And he came to get for himself a wife. Not one that was perfect, not one that was pure, not one that had earned his love. He chose his bride from out of the sinful enemies who were warring against God. He chose his bride out of those who struggled most with their flesh, who were most mastered from among those who hated God most, from among those who were most confused by the world. That's where he got his bride. And as a perfect husband, he didn't come to his bride telling her, these are my needs that you've got to meet. This is what you've got to do to make me happy. He said, I've come to make you holy. And to do so, he gave up everything for his bride, for us. He took that whole penalty that Paul is warning of, the whole penalty that our fleshly, adulterous sin against him and against God deserved. And his death justifies us. And his righteousness is counted as ours so that we can enter into perfect covenant communion with him and into a relationship with his father as our father. And then we are given by the Holy Spirit, given the Holy Spirit, by which our relationship with Christ as his bride really does change you, really does make you holy, so that one day we will be presented to him, we who had already sinned so much against him, by his grace and forgiveness, will be dressed by him in perfect robes of white, and we will go to him with all those who are his to the eternal, beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb with his people.
And that celebration will begin a life of eternal communion with him in his kingdom. This means that now, no matter what you have done, no matter what you are naturally tempted by, no matter how strong this pull in you to look at what God has made, what is embedded in his creation and say, I hate that. I'd rather have anything other than that. No matter what the situation of your heart, God can, will, and wants to cleanse, to forgive, to make you his bride and to make you holy like Christ. Every single one of you, even in this area of your life where there is a whole world around you screaming that it is impossible to deny your flesh, it is impossible to do anything other than what we say you have to do. Do not give in to the world saying that you could never love or honor or enjoy this beautiful picture of relationships and families that God has designed. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit that any one of us sinners can enjoy God's good gifts in a good way. There is not a single one of us who is somehow more naturally inclined to God's way of doing things. There is none of us who deserves the pride of saying that we are getting it done while other people are failing. It is only by grace only by the Holy Spirit that you can enjoy God's good gifts in a holy way. And to that end, friends, he gives us the church. He gives us the bride. He gives it to each other because we all need the help of the Spirit because none of us are perfect to walk confidently with each other in the fight against the flesh to point each other to his grace if we might fail, to make use of the gifts our husband has given to us as his bride. Do not choose the appearance of holiness over holiness. Speak to your brothers and sisters in Christ and enjoy the fruit of the gospel of grace. And friend, if you are trying to war against the sexual chaos in this world around you, but you do not love the gospel. The gospel that is the whole point of God's design for marriage. You are going to wind up no different from the world that you are so proud to oppose. You cannot speak of the sin of the world around us if our greatest love is not the gospel of grace. That must be the foundation of the view of romance and marriage and sexuality that you want to protect. Don't desire that the world just conform to your idea of natural or normal sexuality, which has so often been so full of impurity and its own immorality. Desire that the gospel of grace would go out mightily in the church and in the world so that more people would delight in the love of Jesus, so that more people would be changed by it, and so that more people would say, I want my marriage or my honor for other marriages, as well as every other aspect of my life to proclaim the sweetness of this gospel of grace. And if you are feeling now burdened by your own impurity, sensuality, or immorality, go to God's word and take a look at your perfect husband whose love is the archetype for our whole view of romance. Come to him on your knees as his bride, claiming the sanctification of the spirit that comes through a covenant relationship with him. And if your immorality shows that you do not belong to him, you are not a part of his bride, you live by the flesh, then repent. He is ready to receive you. Just put your trust in him. Become his. 
and his grace is totally sufficient for wherever you have been and whatever you have done and whatever is going on in your heart. He will surely receive you as his own because he is a perfect, gracious husband. Praise God for his living gospel parable of marriage. His beautiful picture of husbands representing Christ, wives representing God's people, forming a covenant of fidelity with each other to love the other and the other alone. Praise God for that picture with all of its delights and its pleasures, which proclaim to a confused and broken and angry world that God is a God of amazing grace and love. And that Jesus Christ is a good husband, better than any you have known, that proclaims to the world the power of his spirit. Friends, how good it is to belong to Christ. How good it is to gaze at him, to know that he is ours, and to say, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love of Jesus Christ, full of perfect fidelity to his people. We thank you that while all of us feel the pull of this sin, while we see it in the world, we see it in our hearts, we see it as an insurmountable mountain to live perfectly in this area, we thank you that Christ came and did. And that he still loves his bride with perfect fidelity, with a love that is full of grace. So I pray here that everyone would know that grace of Jesus that everyone would rest in that perfect covenant love he has for his bride. And that in this aspect of our lives where there is so much noise telling us to live apart from your design, that we have no choice but to live apart from your design, that we would say, I want nothing less than that parable of the gospel so that my relationships, my life would be one that most delights in the covenant love my Savior has for me. And maybe he be glorified in that amazing work of the Spirit being done in us, in our hearts, in our church, and we pray others in our community and all around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.